0: Good morning, faith family. Thank you so much for inviting me over to your house for worship this morning. It is such a blessing to be able to be connected to each other, even if only digitally. And I hope it's okay. Since you're comfortable at home, I thought I'd make myself a little more comfortable this morning, so I'm gonna sit down and uh, I've got my cup of coffee and I've got my Bible and hopefully you've got the same. So uh, I'm gonna pray for us and then we're gonna get started this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for uh, the blessing that it is to be able to uh, at least in part be together this morning. We pray that as we are spread out, God, that we would feel united, that your spirit would draw us together and that we would know that that we are one in you even if we are not in the same location today. We pray that you would speak to us through your word as we read it and study it together, as we sing together as a faith family. I pray that we would sense your very tangible presence with us this morning, right where we are. Uh, Open our spiritual eyes to be able to understand things in your word that we cannot understand apart from you, and we thank you that you promise to grant us wisdom where we lack it when we ask of you. So this morning is all from you, we acknowledge, and it is all for you, and it is in your precious name that we pray. Amen. All right, turn with me this morning to Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 33. It says, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man is son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. Pilate was surprised to hear that he had already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. That's such a striking word, isn't it? And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. There's a lot happening in this passage. And uh, I'd like to talk about four points just to highlight four things that stood out to me. Uh, And we're going to take most of our time to address really just one of those things. Each one of these things could have their own sermon. But we're going to focus on just one thing this morning. But the four things that I would like to point out that stood out to me are our first Jesus statement. What he cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is such an extraordinary statement because it's actually a direct quote from Psalm 22, which is an extraordinary psalm. I encourage you later today to go and read all of Psalm 22. It is a a prophetic prayer that could be Jesus' words verbatim on the cross, right down to describing literally soldiers rolling dice over his clothes. So this cry is not a cry of confusion. Jesus is not confused about what is happening. He knows why he is on the cross. It is a cry of anguish. As for our sake, the Father made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians. So as as he is declaring this, not only is it appropriate to have a little bit of difficulty understanding what's happening here, right? So how is Jesus, fully God and fully man, one with the Father, yet forsaken by the Father? How, how does that all work? Not only is it appropriate to have difficulty in understanding that, I, I would caution you to be wary of anyone who tells you that they fully understand it. The Trinity is a mystery that is far beyond us and will likely still be beyond us, even on the other side of eternity, right? Because on the other side of eternity, I don't get omniscience. So there's still going to be things that God knows that I don't, and I believe the Trinity is gonna be one of those. Just on the other side of eternity, it's not gonna bother us anymore. We will fully appreciate mystery and paradox and delight and worship God in the midst of that. But the point is, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, as Paul says in Galatians. And in this moment, Jesus is feeling the full brunt of that. The second thing that I want to point out in verse 38 is when it says, And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. We will come back to that later. The third thing that I want to point out is the mention of the women. In a time and in a culture where women are, to say the least, not treated with the dignity and value that they were created with and deserve, Jesus stands apart as he calls and affirms and even gives positions of prominence to women. Here the gospel writer records that it is not the apostles who displayed the courage to stick around and see what happened, but the women who were following Jesus that were witnesses to his death, witnesses to his burial, and then given the extraordinary position of being the first witnesses of his resurrection that we'll see in a couple of weeks. I think that's pretty fantastic and amazing. And just another example of how awesome our Jesus is. And then fourthly, Joseph of Arimathea is such an extraordinary individual in in the gospel narrative, <clears throat> he is a member of the Sanhedrin and risks his position and his reputation in order to honor, with an appropriate burial, the very man that the Sanhedrin just condemned to death for claiming to be God. Making a stand like this would, would potentially cost him everything. And yet to him, it is worth it. But the thing I want to focus on this morning is this curtain in verse 38. Why why is it mentioned? Why should I care? Why should you care? And why is this particularly relevant to us right now, this morning? That's what I would like to unpack. So first, we need to understand what exactly is going on with this curtain. What is the curtain and and why is it a big deal that it is torn in two? And rather, then reading 11 hours worth of Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, we're going to turn to Hebrews chapter 9, where we get a nice abbreviated version of an explanation of what is happening in the temple. So in Hebrews chapter 9, here's what we have. And we will put it up on the screen so you can read along together. And if you want to turn there in your Bibles as well, that would be awesome. In Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 1, says, now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. Okay, so it had a place and it had uh, uh, regulations, okay, or procedures. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which there were, was the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain Right, so this, the point is not all of the things that are in the temple. That's not the point he's making, but he's wanting to remind us uh, or help us to understand if we don't know what exactly is going on in there. These <clears throat> excuse me, preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he, but once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing. So... So what is happening here is he says there are two parts of the temple. There's the holy place and the most holy place, the holy of holies. And in the holy place, there's regular daily and weekly rituals that are going on and sacrifices. But the most holy place, only one person is allowed to go and that one time a year. And then here's where it gets really good. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This is extraordinary. So Jesus accomplishes through his blood what all the blood of a thousand years of sacrifices pointed to but could never accomplish. He secured for us eternal redemption. His sacrifice paid humanity's debt once and for all. So here's my attempt at a quick summary of this. So God sets up, A person, a place, and a procedure, right? A person, the high priest, a place, the holy of holies, and a procedure, a specific sacrifice on a specific day every year, all of which are pointing to the person, Jesus. Jesus ultimately is the person, is the place, and is the procedure that actually accomplished what all these sacrifices were pointing to but could never do on their own. Are we tracking? This is the point of the message when it's super helpful to see nodding heads or looks of total confusion. So I know whether or not I need to clarify that. I am hoping that there was a sea of nodding heads, and we'll go along. If not, add your questions right below this in the comments, and uh, and we will try to follow up in this week's podcast. So all of these things are pointing to, to Jesus. So we no longer need the substitute or the shadow of those things, we now have the real. We have full access to the real. Jesus tears the curtain because there's no longer any need for further sacrifice. And also because God's spirit is relocating, right? So God's spirit dwells in the Holy of Holies. That's why no one can go in and out except for the high priest one time a year. Jesus, in this act of tearing the curtain, is opening that forever. There's no longer a need for continued sacrifice because he has accomplished it once and for all. And, as I said, because God's spirit is relocating to his people. This is why this is so relevant to us right now. This is why it is okay and also not okay that we cannot gather together. Right now, we are in this very odd season right, where we are unable to gather in person. And because of what happens in this moment in history that Mark is describing, it is both okay that we can't meet and not okay that we can't meet. And let me explain. It is okay because the church building is not the temple. This is not the place where God's Spirit dwells. God's Spirit is not here in our midst on a Sunday morning because this is a holy place. God's spirit is here because it is filled with God's holy people. Now, that's a little tricky, I understand, because God is, in fact, omnipresent, which means he is everywhere all at once. But he chose, for his own reasons, to be in the holy place in a particular and peculiar way. And now he chooses to be in his people, in you and in me, in a particular and peculiar way. So right now, as you watch this at home, God's Spirit is not more present here with me in this building than he is right where you are. Because Jesus tore the curtain. And if you belong to him, then he gave you his Holy Spirit. Jesus tells us in John chapter 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. That word helper, that is such a poor translation. Some, some translations say comforter, but still, it's just barely scratching the surface. It is such a huge word. It does not imply somebody who's there to give you a hand should you need it. Uh, it's not a comforter, where if you're feeling down, it's someone who goes, they're there, it'll be okay. It is this extraordinary word that implies someone who is with you, who is for you, who is down with you in the depths and in the dirt and is with you in the highest moments and is constantly sustaining and caring for you. It is an, it is an awesome and enormous word and it, it applies to the Holy Spirit. It says, I, he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Holy Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The Jews needed a place and a priest. They needed a mediator between God and his people and a specific time and location in order to meet him. Otherwise, they would be outside his particular and peculiar presence. And sometimes we can view this church building and and the pastor or the priest, depending on your church background as that role now. In fact, I've even had people throughout my ministry career say things to me like, I need you to pray about this for me because you are closer to God. He, he, he must listen to you more than he does me. You have greater access. And, and while that in some sense was true in the priesthood, not only did they have greater access, they actually had the only access. Right? God certainly worked in and through people outside of the priesthood. In fact, most of the prophets were not priests. However, that was not normative, that was unusual. Now the normative way for God to work is in and through the church, his gathered people. That means you. The Bible could not be more clear that you and I do not need another earthly intermediary in order to gain access to God. First Timothy says there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. Not a priest, not a pastor, Jesus, and Jesus alone. He is the go-between that is required for direct access to the Father and the only go-between for direct access to the Father. So whether the church gathers in a cathedral or in a warehouse or in a basement, it makes no difference because the building is not the temple. You are, and I am. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? When we don't understand that and don't believe that God is fully present with us all the time, then we quickly compartmentalize our lives and, and, and we have the category of churchy stuff and the normal stuff. And, and, and we also have a tendency to defer spiritual things and, and the pursuit of that to the professionals, right? It's their job to be close to God on my behalf, like a priest or like a saint. And, and in one sense, you are right. Priests and saints are closer to God than others. But we have to remember that the Bible calls every believer a priest and a saint, This is the reason why not being able to meet in this building together right now does not prevent our worshiping, truly worshiping in spirit and in truth in the actual presence of God. This is also the reason why the corporate gathering, though, is so extraordinary. We are not a people who are standing on the outside watching the person with access to God and and hoping that they will bestow us with God's word and wisdom, but we are the gathering of God's manifest presence in us. Again, not because God is present in this building, but because God is present in his people. And when we are gathered together, there is a fuller representation of God. We see more facets than what we are just able to see on our own. And that's why, It is ultimately not okay for us as a church to settle long-term for online church, and why missing this gathering is a big deal. It is a great blessing on one hand that in this very unusual time, we have technology that allows us to still connect in this imperfect way. I can literally invade your home right now in a totally not at all creepy way. Right? Many of you are likely still in your PJs. Some of you haven't even bothered to roll out of bed. Right? You've just got the laptop sitting on your lap with your cup of coffee and the pillow behind your head. This is a very convenient blessing for this very unusual time. But not entirely unlike the temple being a shadow of the real, this, this is a shadow of real fellowship, of real gathering, of real church. The church which means the assembly, the gathered people of God. It is wonderful that we have access to this while there is no other option, but it is ultimately a sad and broken substitute for the real. I have several friends who over the years have been sent out on deployment And they have all expressed how grateful they are to live in a time when they would be able to communicate via the internet, right? Infrequent and bad connections and all, at least they were able to see their family on that little screen for a few moments rather than being gone for months without ever being able to communicate with them. However, not a single one of them, upon returning home, decided that they preferred seeing their family on the tiny screen rather than in person. Weird, right? Like, with all of the convenience of technology available to them? No, it's not weird at all. Because while the digital resources are helpful and even a blessing in unusual circumstances like this, or when you've been shipped to the other side of the country or the other side of the world, or if you are bedridden and homebound and unable to leave, then it is a blessing, but it is also a hollow and rather sad replacement for the real thing, If someone did come home after a long deployment and say, I actually prefer not to be in direct contact with my kids, I would rather see them over a tiny screen intermittently, we would actually be concerned, right? That would be a serious sign of unhealth. And that's true in the church as well. The word that we translate as church literally means the assembly or the gathering. And the most important part of that gathering is not the sermon, but the actual togetherness itself. The way one pastor, I thought very wisely put it, the church is not a sermon delivery machine. So when we say things under normal circumstances like, ah, I'll just catch it online, That actually makes no sense because how do you catch gathering in person with the people of God to enjoy a fuller experience of his presence online? You can't. This is why countries that are closed to the gospel or, or where there are very few local churches, people will literally walk across minefields. They will climb mountains. They will travel oftentimes for days just for the joyful privilege of being able to gather for a few hours a precious few hours with their brothers and sisters in Christ for true fellowship. We actually get to experience now in light of these circumstances, what millions of our brothers and sisters around the world experience every day, a longing to be together with the people of God. And I thank our father for a new empathy that I can feel for them. And I pray That as absence makes our hearts grow fond for one another, that our Father will ignite in our hearts a deeper and deeper longing to be in the presence of his people, of our brothers and our sisters. The torn curtain is what makes this season okay and also not okay. Okay because you are no further than God's presence right now than when you were in this building. And not okay... Because there is still something extraordinary and essential about the gathered people of God. The author of Hebrews, in fact, tells us that because the curtain is torn, because we have direct access to the Father, that is the very reason why we cannot stop meeting together. Here's what the author of Hebrews says. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, how? By the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So in this season, we thank the Father for technology that allows us to stay partially connected like this to one another. And we also thank him that because the curtain has been torn, though we are in separate houses scattered all around the area, we are still worshiping right now in his direct presence. And we pray fervently that this season would end soon so that once again, the gathered people of Jesus, filled with the presence of the Holy Spirit, can delight in the glory of the Father together. Let's pray, church. Father, we are grateful for your gifts. We are grateful that we can be connected in this incomplete way, and we pray, Father, that you would do what is necessary in this country, God, that you would bring a spirit of healing, that you would eradicate this virus in such an extraordinary way, Father, that people would find it unexplainable apart from a divine act. And we pray that you would continue to stir in people in this time of uncertainty uh, a, a sense that the the idols that we have worshiped in this country are insufficient, that they would see them crumble around them and find you and you alone remain, that you and you alone sustain and save and that you and you alone are greater than these things. God, draw people to yourself in this and through this circumstance and we pray that you would bring quickly the opportunity for us to gather, to gather anew, to gather with fond hearts, towards one another and towards you in the celebration of all that you are. Father, we love you. We desperately need you every day. And it's in your precious name that we pray. Amen.